0: One lasted from 1914 until 1918. In the end, much of Europe was in ruin. The Allies had triumphed and Germany had been defeated. And it was time for payback. The Allies, though America objected, presented the German government with a bill for 132 billion gold marks. That's billion with a B. It was twice Germany's annual income. Desperate Facing a bill they didn't have the money to pay, the Germans did just what America's Continental Congress did in 1777. They fired up the printing press and pumped out the paper. At the end of the war, one dollar would buy roughly four marks. Five years later, one dollar would buy 4.2 trillion marks. That's trillion with a T. Ordinary citizens suffered the most. Germany's birth rate fell and the death rate rose. Infant mortality climbed by 21%, and on the black market, cigarettes became the new money. The government's money was so worthless, a whole wheelbarrow of it couldn't buy a loaf of bread. You might as well use it for wallpaper, for kindling. By 1930, all that crazy, out-of-control printing of money had destroyed the economy of Germany.
1: Hello there. Welcome to the show. Let's talk about Germany. I wish I would have studied German. Um, yeah, I keep trying to get my way to the sack, but let's talk about Germany first, okay, because I think, and remember, I'm thinking, Germany had the fiat money, okay, and... When they had a horrible deal happen, it was in Weimar, Germany, W-E-I-M-A-R. And the reason I want to talk about Weimar, Germany is, well, a lot of reasons. And stick around for the end, because I didn't know where else to put it. I'm going to be playing a clip from the opening ceremony of the World Health Summit 2021, it is a clip by Steve Stefan Ulrich O E L R I C H who is Stefan? Well he is the head guy for Bear 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 Aspirin. Bear aspirin, interestingly enough, was in the Spanish war excuse me, Spanish flu of nineteen eighteen. More people were actually killed with bear aspirin than they were with those vaccines. And this week, what I did was I moved any shows that are on audio, I moved them off of YouTube, okay? There's only about two shows on YouTube that are also on audio. So of the two dozen shows still on YouTube, those shows cannot be on audio because of the graphics. And I have two shows there about the Spanish Flu of 1918 and about deception, and several other things you might want to check out, so anyway, so this Stefan guy gave a very interesting speech about their plans for eugenics. So I would suggest you stick around the end and listen to what he has to say about us. okay, let's get to Weimar Weimar now these days, people that are trying to sell gold on social media are talking about Weimar. What are they saying? Well, what they're saying is that gold during the inflation, during Weimar, when they got off of the fiat money, that gold saved a lot of people's lives. That gold really went up in price. Remember, they print up these graphs, okay, so not going to go there about this gold deal, but that's what the crooks are now using again with the inflation now they're saying hedge off inflation look what Weimar did buy this gold well I don't know Weimar doesn't sound like anybody I would want to model myself after but hey that's just me right so where's Weimar well it's in Germany that I know and it's with it has neighboring cities of Erfurt and Jena it forms the central metropolis area of Thuringia with approximately about a half million inhabitants. The city itself has a population of 65,000. Weimar is also well known because of its large cultural heritage and its importance in German history. The city was a focal point of the German Enlightenment and home of the leading figures of the literary genre of Weimar classicisms. Writers Johann Wolfgang von Goten and Friedrich Schiller in the 19th century, noted composers such as Franz Lissi made Weimar a music center. Later artists and architects such as Henry von Velde, I'm not even going to try the rest of these, and Walter Gropius came to the city and founded the Bahamas Movement, the most important German design school of the interwar period, all in Weimar. The political history of 20th century Weimar was volatile. It was the place where Germans' first democratic constitution, first democratic constitution, it's starting to sound a little bit familiar with this place, right? Was signed after the First World War, giving its name to the Weimar Republic period in German politics. And this Weimar Republic period is from 1918, to 1933. A lot of things going on around that time frame, right? We had the Spanish flu, 1918. We had the people over in Weimar Republic getting formed, And it was one of the cities mythologized by the National Socialist propaganda. These people are starting to sound a little socialist here, right? All this Green New Deals, all this let's help the families. Yeah. All this. Little liars like AOC and the progressive people? Yeah. So actually, why I started going back into Weimar was this <laughs> because there was a Kaiser. A Kaiser is an emperor in German, okay? There was a Kaiser named Wilhelm and he fled from the um, Weimar Republic. He, oh, excuse me, okay. This German emperor. They're also called Kaisers, okay? There was one called Wilhelm, and he was anglicized as William II. He was the last German emperor and king of Prussia, reigning from 15 June 1888 until his abdication on November the 9, 1918. Pretty key point there, right? Anyway, despite strengthening the German Empire's position as a great power by building a powerful navy, why are they always worried about the navy? Isn't that funny, huh? Navy, navy, navy. He had tactless public statements (laughs) and erratic foreign policy, which greatly antagonized the international community and are considered by many to be one of the underlying causes for World War II. This Wilhelm guy got under everybody's skin. Well, what I thought was interesting that got my attention back on Weimar, I kind of only knew about Weimar in kind of a general sense, okay? So what got my attention was this Wilhelm guy, also known as William II, he fled from Weimar, it wasn't Weimar then, anyway, he fled from there to the Netherlands, And that left the power structure that set up the Weimar Republic. This guy fled. That led Weimar. Well, why did he flee to the Netherlands? I don't know. Netherlands became the place of NATO, right? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So anyways, um, despite strengthening the German Empire's position as a great power by building up the Navy, his tactless public statements, I guess he was kind of a rogue, kind of a mean guy. When the German war effort collapsed after a series of crushing defeats on the Western Front in 1918, this Wilhelm guy, he was forced to abdicate, thereby bringing an end to the house of Hohenzollern's 300-year reign. Okay, 300-year reign, excuse me. So these German dudes had this house of Hosenherr's, it's H-O-H-E-N-Z-O-L-L-E-R-N. That house went on supposedly for 300 years. <clears throat> Don't care about that one. Okay, so this guy lived. Interestingly enough, he was born January 27, 1859, and he died in June the 4th, 1941. So, yeah, at that time, it was called the Kingdom of Netherlands that became the founding member of NATO in 1949, and his unabated commitment to the international legal order gave it a much larger role in international affairs than its size would normally justify so I don't know sounds to me like this Wilhelm guy (laughs) just moved across the border (laughs) and another thing that triggered all this stuff was the Treaty of Versailles okay I had to review what this was because this ticked off a pretty big deal okay It was the most important of peace treaties that brought World War I to an end. The treaty ended the state of war between Germany and the Allied powers. It was signed on 28 June 1919 in the Palace of Versailles exactly five years after the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which led to the war. The other central powers on the German side signed separate treaties. Although the armistice signed on 11 November 1918 ended the actual fighting, it took six months of Allied negotiations at the Paris Paris Peace Conference to conclude the peace treaty. The treaty was registered by the Secretary of the League of Nations on 21 October 1919. And don't forget, League of Nations eventually becomes United Nations. Of the many provisions of the treaty, one of the most important and controversial required Germany to accept the responsibilities of Germany and her allies, meaning the financial responsibility. Germany was going to get hit for paying for the war. So that led them into a hyperinflation crisis. Starting to sound familiar? So then in August 1923, an economist, Carl Heffenreich, proposed a plan to issue a new currency, the Rogermark. mark. It's called the Rye mark, R-Y-E mark to be backed by mortgage bonds, indexed to the market, price of rye grain. I don't know why that is, but the plan was rejected because of the great fluctuating price of rye and paper marks. So, then along came this agriculture minister, Hans Luther. Maybe with those Lutherans, I'll get to Hans in a minute here. Uh, this guy, Hans, proposed a plan that substituted gold for Rye and led to the issuance of the Rentenmark. Mark. It's called the Mortgage Mark. Backed by bonds, indexed to the market price of gold. So we had Weimar is backing their money by gold, right? How'd that turn out? Well, let's see here. The gold bonds were indexed at the rate of 2,790 gold marks per kilo, I don't know about any of this stuff so it was adopted in monetary reform decrees on October 13 to 15, 1923 a new bank, the Ritten Bank, was set up and controlled by the German finance minister, Hans Luther yeah Hans was uh, a German politician and Chancellor of Germany for 482 days in 1925 to 1926. As Minister of Finance, he helped stabilize the mark during the hyperinflation of 1923. From 1930 to 1933, Luther was head of the Reich Banks. And from 1933 to 1933, he served as German ambassador to the United States. I guess that was his prize, right? So, yeah. um, Weimar was formed shortly after World War I. It was Germany's government for the duration of 14 years from 1919 to 1933. The president of Weimar Germany at the time was Friedrich Ebert, who was part of the Social Democratic Party called the SDP. Now Weimar, this is from somebody else's piece that I'm reading from. Now Weimar Germany may seem long forgotten as it's 88 years old. However, anyone alive during that time period in Weimar Germany will never forget it, and neither should you. So why was the Weimar Republic formed? To put it simply, the government previously just didn't work. After Germany played a casual role in World War 1, the people of Germany lost faith in their European emperor Wilhelm, the guy that ran to <laughs> that ran away across the border. This all occurred in November of 1918. Next month, they held elections, and before you knew it, in February of 1919, there was a new formation of government, that being Weimar, Germany, February 1919. I wonder if the Spanish flu thing, she had a lot going on, right? All this confusion. These people really, really excel in chaos, don't they? They no longer had a monarch, but rather a republic. Up until then, they had a monarch. Here the people held the power, (laughs) right, vested in themselves to then transfer that to elected officials. One of the few elected officials being this this Ebert guy, and he said later in that year, of 1919, Ebert had formed what was known as the Weimar Constitution. Soon after the republic was formed, Germany had to pay its dues. Germany owed everybody a lot of money for the war. As stated previously, Germany played a casual role role in World War I. More importantly, it had hurt the country immensely in many ways, but notoriously known for its financial ruin. One of the few reasons was because they had borrowed money from foreign entities to fund their operations during World War I. However, they lost the war, which correlates to no compensation. Furthermore, due to Germany losing, they also were $269 billion in debt to the United Kingdom, France, and the United States. Therefore, Germany had to pay its debt off, and it was unbearable. This is part and parcel due to the fact the economy wasn't strong, which made everything more problematic. So with a weak economy and struggling to pay off debt, it caused Weimar Germany's desperation. Workers went on strike due to governments avidly persisting that Germany pays off its debts, which wasn't feasible. Since workers were going on strike and protesting in the streets, Mines and factories had to close, causing even more turmoil amongst Germany's devastated economy. (laughs) We have boats docked out at sea, right? Now, it's important to heed when President Ebert's response was to the chaos. Essentially, Ebert and others had believed it would be a good idea to turn to the printing press and print mass amounts of Reichmarks. Germany's currency at the time. Now, with the unprecedented amount of money printing by the government, they had started the debasement of their currency. The currency lost value rapidly as Reichmarks were printed by the day. Their proclivity of money printing in Weimar, Germany, was a casual role in creating hyperinflation. Per Oxford Languages, hyper, hyperinflation is defined as monetary inflation incurring at a high rate. <laughs> I could have told you that while looking up a dictionary. Simply, it's when inflation is an increase of money supply in the current, occurs at a faster rate than usual. It was dreadful for the citizens of Weimar Republic. Purchasing power decreased for everyone in Germany, which made the cost of living higher than ever before. According to several sources, in nineteen twenty-two a loaf of bread was worth three dollars and fifty cents. Nineteen twenty-two, three dollars and fifty cents. By nineteen twenty-three, a loaf of bread reached the value of one thousand and two hundred dollars. It didn't stop there. Prices claimed higher and higher until a ha- loaf of bread reached ridiculous prices in the millions and then billions. Now a loaf of bread wasn't the only good to rapidly increase. Excuse me, a loaf of bread wasn't the only good to rapidly increase. All prices increased. However, prices rising post-haste weren't the only issue either. Marriages were called off, and retirement funds were wiped out. It got to the point where it was futile to buy wood because it was cheaper to burn Reichmarks. Many people of the Weimar Republic had faith in their government to not debase the Reichmarks. Many had savings and ultimately watched them vanish before their eyes. Life was just devastating. The country was in financial ruin and it hurt everybody, even those who were in power. Germany was once again fed up with the government and the Weimar Republic was no more. However, it didn't get much better. In the year of 1933, Nazi Germany had taken government control and we all know how that played out. It wasn't until 1948, a few years after Nazi Germany crumbled, that Germany adopted the Deutschmark and began to stabilize as a country. Weimar Germany, it started that after, excuse me, it stated that after World War One, Germany was in chaos. <laughs> they sure like that chaos, don't they? However, stated by the History Media Company, after a series of mutinies by German sailors and soldiers, Kaiser Wilhelm, well, Lost the support of the military and the German people. Yeah, we already talked about that. He split to go over the country to form NATO, I guess. Yeah, he he was alive when NATO was getting formed, so pretty suspicious, right? So let's talk about this country, right? I see a lot of patterns here, but, you know, what do I know, right? Trust a psychopath at your own peril, people. Just trust him at your own peril. Fiat Currency Lifespan and Inflation American currency currently has the reserve currency. This means it's accepted on a global scale and used primarily in areas that don't have currencies of their own. However, America's U.S. dollar is also a fiat currency, government-issued currency not backed by anything. Well, it's backed by the goodwill of the psychopaths in charge. So it is backed by their word. Akin <laughs> to the Reichsmarks in Weimar, Germany, the currency is a belief system. Americans and people globally believe in the U.S. dollar. However, should you? On average, the lifespan of fiat currencies is typically 50 years. Oh, excuse me, 35 years. Typical 35 years. Since 1971, when Nixon took America off the gold standard, the U.S. dollar has been a fiat currency since 1971. That means the U.S. dollar has been a fiat currency for almost 50 years now, exceeding the lifespan. If the rice mark can fail, then so can the U.S. dollar. The difference is the U.S. dollar has the largest military and isn't printing as much money as fast as my part of Germany? Well, that's good to know. However, that doesn't mean it couldn't be one day. Yeah, I think they're printing as fast as they can get that thing going. So, anyway, so uh, to pay for the large cost, Germany suspended the gold standard. They did, they did that to suspend the gold standard. This stuff gets very confusing. So, anyway, so by the fall of 22, it was worthless. Um So, yeah, now they're using this whole uh, Weimar thing to get people to actually invest in gold, which I find pretty interesting because, (laughs) I don't know, Um, do do what you think is right. Uh, I'm not sure that. um, When did the hyperinflation end in Weimar, Germany? In thinking about hyperinflation, we are interested in events from a full decade earlier. As the peak years of Weimar, Germany, hyperinflation were from 1921 to 1923. So it ran a pretty good course. Then, too, after the hyperinflation ended, and that's when they were paying, you know, a million dollars for a loaf of bread, right? Yeah. Um, Let me see. Then after the hyperinflation, Germany experienced a time of relative peace and economic recovery between 1924 and 1929. But then, of course, they had the war, right? Um, Yeah. After the hyperinflation ended, Germany experienced a time of relative peace, and this five-year stretch was prosperous enough to be known as the Golden Twenties. Isn't that weird? I was looking at some things with, who was that, um, I don't know, Marlene Dietrich, that man in a wig. Oh, I don't know. What were we all thinking? What were we all thinking? I guess, you know, men wearing wigs, entertaining the soldiers. I'll be getting to more of that soon with the recruitment efforts they do around here. But anyways, um, uh, three concepts. The Weimar Republic was created in the aftermath of World War One, shortly after Germany accepted defeat. Wilhelm abdicated, ran off the other country. I think there's something there with that guy running off the other country, but, you know, whatever. Um, they're all in this together. So, um, yeah, I think that there's a strong possibility that um, this country is, you know, these are one-trick ponies, right? Um, They're printing money like crazy. They're doing all of these things. to keep the money off the books, and, you know, China's got these deals going with Evergrande, and what they're doing is they've got loans out here and there, and it's just a big mess. It's going to be a matter of, you know, they're all going to be lining up to see who's going to play chicken, right? So in terms of takeaways for America 100 years later, the chief lesson comes in a form of a question, or perhaps three questions. What do you do with a mountain of debt that is far too big to repay? Good question. Have you looked at the debt this country owns? You know, every day, I must hear it a 100 times a day. Somebody says, this is the biggest, richest, most advanced. Really? This country is so poor, there are trillions of dollars in debt. The bridges are falling to pieces. Children are just starving to death at lunch. And they keep saying the same thing repetitive programming that's why you need to get off of social media and let your brain rest from all this stuff question number two what happens if you try to repay that debt via printing press while granting all manner of political requests (laughs) well we're going to find out soon aren't we they're printing the presses right now so (laughs) they're still printing (laughs) they got their Ashkenazi Juke team running the presses so (laughs) who knows Will they stop those presses? You do realize that with the zero-interest stuff and all that printing press stuff, right, they're using zero-interest to go around and buying up everything they've got. And they're doing a lot of stupid things. Like, what about the people that were buying um, all the homes and stuff, and then they figured out that <laughs> they got the algorithms wrong? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, now they're trying to unload, like, 7,000 homes. You, there's so many crooks here. I really... <laughs> I, I just, you'll have to forgive me. Some days I just, I can't keep track of all the crooks. Okay, let me get back to question number three. What happens if large amounts of currency are distributed to the populace, even as shortages of goods supply? Well, that's another question. <laughs> Good question. Um, because uh, people have a lot of money. Savings went way up, and they're buying all these goods. But, i you know, that's really not the answer, okay? So, let me conclude here. This is what this person said. One of our chief realizations from studying Weimar in Germany is the conviction that if you take the willingness to infl- inflate away a debt mountain, combine it with political forces to pay wages and spray money around, no matter what, and then mix ri- rising prices due to good shortages with a dose of inflationary psychology... Runaway inflation is what you get. The last time America had to deal with anything like this, or even close to it, was the late 1970s, when Res- Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker increased interest rates into the high teens to kill off inflation. And that's the only way they're going to kill off inflation, is to raise the interest rates. But in this game of chicken, are they going to do that? I don't know. I don't know. I really can't think like these crooks. So. <laughs> Does such backbone even still exist today? No, they're not gonna they're not gonna um well, I'm not gonna start speculating. Are they gonna raise interest rates? Who knows? And what would counterinflation move that aggressive? I don't know. Um, I think that <laughs> I think that we're heading into massive um inflation and everybody seems to be driving around this country acting like everything is just A OK. So I don't know. i got a million other things to talk to you guys about, so I'll be back later. Be safe out there. Goodbye for now.
2: I now have the great pleasure to announce Stefan Ulrich. He's a member of the board uh, of management at Bayer, and he's also president for the pharmaceutical section of Bayer. Stefan, please come up. <laughs> you don't have to wait. And um, I know him from quite a few interactions and I know that he's a very globally thinking and research and development and innovation-minded person and therefore I'm very interested to hear what Stefan has to tell us now. The floor is yours. Well, thank you, thank you Axel. Um, lieber Herr Professor Gant, lieber Axel Pries, uh, Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, it's really an honour and a privilege to be up here talking to you. Indeed, Axel and I uh, share a lot of time during the year, uh, at least on the board of Charité, where I have the honour to also serve. Um, but I've also been a close uh, follower and also active participant in the World Health Summit over the last 10 years, at least. Uh, and, uh, Detlev, it's uh, it's not only a privilege to be up here, but it's really amazing what you've created over the last 13 years because what started as a small idea uh, with a big vision today is much more than a small idea, but you truly live up to uh, the name World Health Summit because it has become a true reference uh, every year and a fixture in everybody's calendar, so congratulations for that. This past year, the life signs have really emerged as a light in the darkness of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's value to society recognized to a degree rarely seen before, certainly not during my lifetime, or at least uh, working in this industry. We have many reasons to be proud of, and you've heard it, and it's really hard to speak after all these people. Um, I think unprecedented uh, collaboration transparency, but also taking accountability for health across all different uh, sectors and stakeholders. We've heard about the breathtaking speed of discovery, regulatory approval, also manufacturing and getting vaccines and other highly effective medicines uh, to patients in, uh, in a time we've never seen before. And hopefully I think this all will serve as a foundation a foundation to a more sustained uh, partnership to tackle some of the other health crises uh, that uh, we've heard about uh, because this very disruptive pandemic is still just a small piece of all the remnants of health that we need to tackle. So while we may be celebrating, um, we as global players cannot ignore one simple fact. Not everybody could benefit from the breakthroughs and collaboration that we've seen. And, Bill, you, I think you said it very nicely. Um, it feels good for me, like for everyone else in this room, um, to have benefited over the past year from innovation that helped uh, us to be today again in this room in person rather than to be all behind screens, even though I, um, I applaud the fact that you made this a hybrid uh, a hybrid conference, which I think is going to be most of the conferences in the world, regardless of pandemics anyway. Um, So I am not really interested in the health for a lucky few. I'm interested in health for all. Our successes over these 18 months uh, should embolden us to really focus much more closely on access, innovation, and collaboration to unleash health for all, especially as we enter, on top of everything that's happening, really into a new era of science. A lot of people talk about the biorevolution in this context. So we've heard from Bill a lot about access, so I'm not going to repeat uh, some, of, uh, some of the examples that uh, Bill has rightfully, I think, has given. But um, health for all definitely means patients around the world that get access to medicines, at a price that they can afford, and making use of partnerships to ensure our efforts are sustainable over the long term. I could give you countless other examples, maybe also outside of Europe where we are today, uh, where it is already difficult enough to get access and equitable access across all countries, because I can guarantee you there's a difference between having access to novel uh, medicines in Berlin uh, than it is in Bucharest or in in the Ukraine, for example. Um, we also need to focus on what is socially responsible outside of Europe uh, and uh, ensure sustainable action there. Um, we pledged this past year to give an additional 100 million women access to contracepti- contraception in the world. We've invested 400 million this year into new plants that are dedicated to just produce Uh, long-acting contraceptives uh, for for women in low- and middle-income countries. Uh, We had Bill Bill Gates this week in Berlin. I'm sure many of you have met him uh, this week. Uh, Together with with him and and, uh, Melinda Gates, uh, we're working very closely on uh, family planning initiatives as as an example for that. one of my preferred uh, projects, uh, and we're a leader in heart health as a company, and we've been invested in this for a long time, and, and I hope uh, one of the anticoagulants that uh, you had to take maybe came from us. So, uh, oh, well, he raises his thumb, so so glad to, to help you out there, Bill. Um, and uh, today, I must say, for the first time, I didn't feel bad about never having, to, having tried a skateboard. Um, in terms of um, – of one of the things that, that I feel very strongly about is, is our, um, because it's a nice example, is our Ghana health initiative, uh, Heart Initiative, sorry, uh, where we partner with, uh, with the German um, Development Initiative, the GIZ, so the uh, German, German Institute for Collaboration um, to improve uh, risk assessment and management of cardiovascular disease on site in, in public health facilities. Because I think this is exactly – it's not just about donating medicines or giving medicines at a lower price. It's also being on site to to help put this into practice, uh, which I feel um, is a nice example. We've heard a lot about innovation tonight. Health for all is certainly also embedding innovation into all facets of the life sciences ecosystem, um, making use of the current momentum to tackle issues beyond COVID-19. We've seen the vaccines as the perfect example uh, during this crisis, but innovations in the field of biotech uh, also radically upend uh, our view on many other diseases, especially NCDs. We can now think of curing many of those diseases, not just treating symptoms as we think forward. Um, innovation, and we tend to forget that, especially in the rich countries, is also – uh, sustainability at a totally different level because those that take the leap to drive innovation in a really meaningful way and invest and take the risk to invest in R&D will also uh, attain sustainability by creating job security and creating prosperity for those that take the investment. I think this is really important also for uh, uh, for these um, latitudes here. And um, for us, therefore, Uh, We're really taking that leap, uh, us as a company buyer, uh, in cell and gene therapy, which to me is one of these examples where really we're going to make a difference, hopefully, uh, moving forward. uh, Ultimately, the uh, the mRNA vaccines uh, are an example for that uh, cell and gene therapy. I always like to say, if we had surveyed two years ago uh, in the public, would you be willing to take gene gene or cell therapy and inject it into your body, we would have probably had a 95% refusal rate. I think uh, this pandemic has also opened many people's eyes to to innovation in a way that uh, was maybe not possible before. Um, But it's not just the industry that has to innovate. It's uh, across all uh, all the value chains, starting with uh, academia and university, and again, the World Health Summit, I can only applaud the initiative, is a perfect example for that because Ditlev, like nobody else, I think you've created a network of university medicine. It started with very few and today, I think it's somewhere here behind me, you can see the example of of all those that participate. We need to make sure that the knowledge that's created in our universities, in our academia, is translated. uh, translated before it goes into shiny paper publications. It's translated ideally into patents and into applications and that results in new treatments, medicines, devices, but also medical procedures. That's what we need if we want to keep up with with innovation. Um, For us um, at Bayer, innovation means uh, collaborating early and closely with those partners um, and making sure no one is left behind. So. For everyone to benefit from breakthrough in science, we require innovation-friendly policy, regulatory and economic frameworks – we've heard about this also in uh, in Bill's talk – that really understand the urgency of acting now as the groundswell of the biorevolution picks up. Sustainable health innovation must be further elevated. There is an opportunity here during Germany's G7 presidency in 2022. Normally, Jens Spahn, I would have uh, uh, directed this at you, we now need to also talk to the incoming government in Germany about this specific responsibility uh, to put health uh, and innovation and sustainable health firmly on the agenda. Health for all uh, means also recognizing that a global multi-partner effort is required and that collaboration will be key. No industry player can do this alone. No NGO can do this alone. No government can do this alone. We can only do it together. And we've already seen over the past uh, pandemic what can happen when everyone in the healthcare ecosystem is united by a joint purpose. So what's new this time, I think, is how society at large views the life sciences and our collaborations. We gave people around the world new hope. We inspired new generations of innovators. I can imagine that many young people that graduate now from high school and that decide for a college education, they want to go into science again because they see what science can move and how important science is in our lives. We inspired our community to think more boldly. Collaboration will be key for achieving health for all. In my vision, I see a joint effort of government working hand-in-hand with science organizations, industry, and civil society, and I can say as an example because uh, Minister Spahn and I, I think uh, we've talked uh, quite quite often over the last two years. Uh, He will say not uh, more often than he would have liked probably, Um, but uh, it's been that type of collaboration that um, that I would hope for to preserve as we move forward. We're at the beginning of a marvelous era in science, and we should be emboldened, as I said before, to make health for all possible through access, innovation, and collaboration. Thank you for your attention.